Desperation leads to compromise. Have you ever felt so desperate that you have found yourself considering not just once, but over and over and over again all your different escape routes, legitimate and even illegitimate, considering even sinning to get out of whatever it is that you determine to be your darkness. What are you desperate about? It's that thing that keeps you up at night. If you could just get out of this situation and into this promised land. Or maybe you don't even find yourself in a desperate situation. You just know you want to get to that promised land. This morning we begin our three sermon series in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And uh, Isaiah is a major prophet. His writing, the major prophets were just longer than the Old Testament minor prophets. But Isaiah is such a key book in scripture. And in the book, in the setting here, God's people were in deep darkness. They were desperate. And their sin led them to compromise. At the time that Isaiah ministered to the people of God, roughly in a 50-year period, 750 to around 700 BC, it was a really threatening time for them, and they, again, were desperate. In an earthly sense, instead of trusting in the Lord for deliverance, they abandoned Him, and they threw themselves at whatever it was that they thought could bring security. So they're, they're in their darkness. And it's into this bad situation that God gives his word through Isaiah. According to his covenant faithfulness to his people, he would, in fact, send, despite their sin, a coming king, because they couldn't rule themselves. A suffering servant, because they couldn't deal with their own sins. And a conqueror, because God alone is the king. Chapters 1 through 37, that's the section that we cover today, Sermon 1. It points us to the coming king. Chapters 38 to 55, which will be Sermon 2 next month, that points us to the coming suffering servant, the coming Savior. And then chapters 56 to 66, that's going to be Sermon number 3, and that points us to the coming conqueror. To help with uh, the overview series here, we're going at like a 20,000 foot view, obviously. Uh, you have an outline in your bulletin, and if you didn't get that bulletin, you can feel free and grab one later on at the doors over there. Anyways, that outline uh, hopefully will help you as you yourself read through the entire book of Isaiah to help you understand what's going on, to continue to internalize what you hear here as you meditate on God's Word. Uh, you definitely don't have to have it out on your lap during the sermon. You can use it for your own reading at home. Uh, but because the structure is right there, I won't spend too much time talking about the actual structure of Isaiah, at least in 1 to 37. And then also for this sermon, because it is a 20,000 foot view sermon over 37 chapters, you definitely ought to prepare yourselves to flip, okay? We're going to be flipping more than we normally flip. And so I'm going to be asking you to turn to chapter, turn to this first. And so if you need a Bible right now, let me encourage you to go grab a Bible back there. Of course, you can use your phones, but I think actually the phone is a little bit more cumbersome, but you definitely want to have your Bible out. And then because we got to cover so much ground, unfortunately, I probably am not going to get to like some of your favorite verses in the book of Isaiah. Um, but nevertheless, I hope that the thrust of the book is communicated and Christ is indeed exalted. After all, just as Victor mentioned... Christ is the end of the scriptures, the fulfillment, the end of the scriptures. And I, although Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Christ came, we know that all of these promises, the promise of a coming king, the promise of the suffering servant, and then the promise of the conqueror finds their fulfillment in Christ the Messiah. So turn with me to the book of Isaiah, and we are definitely not going to read 37 chapters uh, but let's go ahead and stand and let's go ahead and read Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. 
And it's our tradition to stand to read the word of God. So let's look here at the prophecy about this child that would come, the king, the coming king, the righteous one. 9-1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Please be seated. Again, even here in chapter 9, if you look in verse 2, you see clearly that there is darkness. And we continue here with the introduction, or now we go to point number one. Desperation leads to compromise. Desperation leads to compromise. I remember one time feeling desperate myself in the month that I was graduating seminary. Now, now, you know, this is a relatively light example to what's going on with God's people here and I'm sure other situations where we might feel desperate. Anyways, the month that I was graduating seminary, I was 28 years old, married to Melanie. We had a three-year-old and a one-year-old at the time, but I had no job secured, and this is the month of graduation. Certainly, I had job prospects. I was talking to my friend in Dubai, joining him at his church, but their leaders hadn't yet made their decision, right? So I'm just waiting, and I had been waiting actually for a couple of months there. Perhaps now I didn't manage my own job search well or my expectations maybe of, how, of uh, just how many places I should be looking at. But in a moment, I looked at my primary responsibilities, taking care of Melanie, taking care of my kids, and I was desperate. I found myself not just looking for jobs, but clawing after jobs. Going about the job search with, frankly, sinful anxiety. Like if I just tried hard enough, I could make a job materialize. And so really, I searched in my own strength, almost void of God. Thankfully, God convicted me of this type of sinful self-reliance, and then I repented. I certainly continued searching, so if you're searching for a job, do not take this as me saying, don't search, just cast it off, right? No, God has given us, you know, he's given us the computer, he's given us a brain, he's given us ability to do, so yes, we definitely want to search. In fact, if you're looking for a job, you should consider making it your full-time job to look for a job while trusting in the Lord to do what he wills for you. But thank God I repented, saw my sin, turned towards him, and trusted myself to him. By the grace of God, eventually I went to go join my friend in, at the church there in Dubai. Again, this is, this is a light example of how desperation can lead to compromise. In that situation, sinful self-reliance. In some ways, kind of discarded God and went about life taking care of my situation in my own power. Just imagine, right, for the people of God God's Old Testament covenant people, they were going through such desperation. Imagine what I just said, times a million. They feared. They feared everything around them, and they clawed after security. And actually, it revealed and led to devastating, sinful compromise. To explain the situation here, 
Let me give you some background. They were having internal problems and external problems. Internal problems, they were having national troubles. They were having national troubles. The people of God as Israel, right, they had long been formed all by God's grace, long before Isaiah prophesied. God, the sovereign Lord, drew near to Abraham or Abram back in Genesis, and he said, to you I'll give people land blessing. One of your offspring is going to be a blessing to the world, bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. Right? And so God, out of Abram, multiplies the nation. So the people of Israel had been around for a long time. But around 200 years before Isaiah prophesied, Israel had split into two kingdoms. Right? That's not good. They had split. You had the northern kingdom, which retained the title Israel. And if you were to read in the book of Isaiah, Ephraim is the capital. And then you had the southern kingdom, Judah. The southern kingdom, Judah. And sadly, they would fight against each other. You know, you think about civil war, think about their infighting, all this. And they're supposed to be God's people to display his glory to the watching world. But they're given into sin and they just slide downhill. The glory of the kingdom that was there under David, under Solomon, it was gone. Also, in terms of an internal problem, they had big time problems with leadership. You can read 2 Kings, for example. Just go home this afternoon, read through 2 Kings, and see all of the problems that both kingdoms have. In general, there is no godly leadership. There is no king that is after God's own heart, in general. And these kings, turn, they turn away from the Lord, and then they are relying on other nations. So they're compromised in leadership. And then when it comes to the external problems, they had the threat of these rising superpowers all around them, right? If you think about Israel, northern, and then Judah in the southern, they were just surrounded by these monstrous king, other kingdoms. You had Assyria to the north that basically ruled everything in the section that we're looking at today. You had the rising Babylonian kingdom in the east, uh, which shows up later on in the next sermon. And then, of course, you had the southern, you had the, to the south of them, you had Egypt. And then, of course, to the west of them is just, is just ocean. So they're kind of hemmed in by these rising superpowers, all pagans, all trusting in themselves, threatening little Israel, threatening little Judah. You think about the problems that they're in there, right? I mean, what are your options there if, you, if you're sinfully desperate? You want to get out of that situation. You could either submit, grovel, to the surrounding nations. You could fight yourself and get destroyed if you're fighting in your own strength. Or you could form alliances to just try and stave off destruction. Just trying to survive. So imagine that geopolitical mess. Everyone's fighting everyone. At best, you ally up with whoever is best suitable, but still there's fear all around. For example, just turn over to chapter 7, and while you're turning there, it's important to note, right, the, the reason why we set the scene is so that we can understand what's going on there, but then we might be so far in terms of distance and time and nation and everything like that, like, okay, so what does that have to do with us? That has to do with us because we are just like them. And we're going to see how, but mainly in the way that we don't want to trust in God, but instead we want to rely on ourselves and our own wisdom and in our own pride. And we make alliances in all sorts of different ways with the world. Look at seven. Look at this fear here, right? Syria, little Syria is different than Assyria. Assyria was huge. Little Syria uh, was there. Syria and Israel partner up. Not good, okay? They partner up against the southern kingdom that is Judah. Look at verse 2, 7, 2. When the house of David was told, that is the southern kingdom of Judah, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, that is the north Israel, the heart of Ahaz, bad king, okay, Ahaz, evil king of Judah, Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And you know, out of that fear, out of that potential darkness of getting crushed by uh, Syria and Israel, Judah partners up with Assyria. That's bad. Spiritually, spiritually here, the big problem is their spiritual heart. So they got that for their biggest, most important trouble. They lack faith. They lack trust in God, sovereign Yahweh over all. This is, in fact, their biggest problem. It is not who is it that we can partner up with. It is that they, is, they had already rejected God. 
And the fact that they're going to rely on a pagan nation and then soon adopt their gods, it just goes to show that they had already rejected God. They refused to trust in the Lord, their creator, their sustainer, and their protector. And so you see how the book opens. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Look at verse 2. Well, let's just start in verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, this is just a time reference linking him to actual kings there, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And then here we have this prophecy, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And then you look at this comparison here in verse 3. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. What a way to start the book. They rejected the Lord who called them, who grew them, who developed them, who delivered them, and God designed them to be a magnificent display of His glory, His love, His holiness, His purity, His separateness, His holiness. But instead, they go and run to other kingdoms, other nations for deliverance. Listen to what Ahaz, evil king over Judah, the southern kingdom. Listen to what Ahaz says as he grovels to Assyria for deliverance. This is in 2 Kings 16, 7. 2 Kings 16, 7. You can turn there if you want. This is what it says, though. This is Ahaz, the king of Judah, okay? I am your servant, Assyria, and your son, Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. You should read spiritual betrayal against Yahweh the Lord. These words, right, these words spoken to the king of Assyria should have been directed to God and with confidence, frankly, in who he is. But instead, it's like he runs, grovels over to this pagan king and it's almost as if he is praying to him, I am your servant, I am your son. Deliver me with all confidence in who he is. And you think back to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, though God the Father reared and brought up his people. The people throw away God's sonship, servanthood to Yahweh who is righteous for sonship and slavery to Assyria. And you know what else Ahaz does? 2 Kings 16.8. 2 Kings 16.8. He doesn't just go grovel over to the king of Assyria there. 16.8. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. There, too, you should read spiritual betrayal of the Lord. Because if you think back to the book of Exodus, when God brings his people out of Egypt, he has all of them make, basically, temple worship, right? Where he he lets them gather in a place. Well, then it was a tabernacle. And inside there, where they were to worship, there were things that were dedicated to the Lord, holy to the Lord. Altar, holy to the Lord. Lampstands, holy to the Lord. For the people of God to worship. And now there goes King Ahaz, bad king over Israel, taking all of the stuff in the house of the Lord and handing them over, apparently holy to the king of Assyria. Of course, naturally, when you submit yourselves to the world, you submit yourselves to the world's gods. That too is what we see in the book of Isaiah God's people during this time are guilty of mixing, really, pagan worship and the worship of the Lord. And they have no problem with it. They just squish it together and they just create their own thing. And that's what the world, what we call as syncretism. But frankly, it becomes an entirely different thing. 
And the book of Isaiah is filled with God's words against these false gods and those who worship them. Words, frankly, of mockery, of sarcasm. Because the things that we as people could bow down to while we might carve them to be in the image of gods, they are really in Hebrew. It might sound like gods, like Elohim. Instead, they are Elilim. They are nothings. They're nothings. And to summarize what is at the heart of their rejection of God is that they are lofty and proud. You see this in 2.17. And so God condemns them in chapter 5. Go ahead and turn to chapter 5. The first five books, by the way, are, is like a prologue. And everything that God's going to touch on is basically in the first five chapters. But listen to what he says there. He condemns them. Woe, this is verses 20 to 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, who are wise in their own eyes. Then look at verse 24. Here's the heart of all of it. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Frankly, they're tired of God and his word. They're tired of it. Turn over to 28.9, 28.9. Like I said, we're, gonna be, we're turning, getting finger exercise apparently. 28 verse 9. It captures Israel's attitude to God's word and his, and his prophets. Though God gave them, gave the people his word, yet to them they judge it as if it's something like wisdom for preschoolers. That's stuff over there, stuff for the babies not wisdom from the heavens. If God's word was wisdom from the heavens, then, as Moses said, we'll live on every single word of it, right? We'll, we'll treasure it. We come here ready to hear it and then to heed it, to treasure it up in our hearts, and our minds. But to these people, they're so proud in their own wisdom that it is just precept upon precept. You look there, verse 10. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. In Hebrew, those words precept and line are tza and ka. To the proud, it literally sounds like tza, 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 ka, 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 ka. Or in our English equivalent, blah, 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 blah. This is instructive. You want to know if you are proud Look at your attitude towards God's word. Is it blah, blah, blah? If it is, then you already know that you've determined that wisdom lies outside of this, lies outside of here, right? Wisdom, deliverance, true meaning for life is not here, it is out there. And that, friends, is pride. Because we see God's word, word from heaven, divine word, and we say, now, blah, blah, blah. Wisdom is over here. This is pride. Not trusting in God, but trusting in our own wisdom. Wisdom here. That's what draws, drives them. That's what draws us to claw after solutions that are not God when we are desperate and deliverance. Uh, desperate for deliverance. Let's say you claw after health solutions in biohacks and vitamins and medical treatments and all the right doctors. And if we don't get it, then our, when we spiral out of control, it's that thing that keeps us out, up late at night. It's that thing that is causing us desperation. It is that that gives us darkness, our health going down. Or let's say you claw after identity in career. Or you claw after financial security. And then so you, in the moment, scour the internet for the highest yield savings account. New funds, new fund managers, new promotions, whatever it is. We think we live in darkness. We think that the promised land is over here and we rely on our own wisdom to get there. That's why we that's why we stay up late at night. That's, why, that's what consumes us when we're trying to figure out solutions to our problems. Oftentimes. But you know what? Pride can also be what drives us to coolly sit back 
coolly sit back, maybe hands crossed. I'm not picking on you if your hands are crossed. I'm not looking right now. It's what drives us to coolly sit back and think, there's so much talk about the gospel here. Give me something new. I personally have not heard anybody here say that, but I do know that sometimes that stuff can happen in our hearts. I have literally heard someone, not here, it was maybe 20 years ago, someone say about the songs that we were singing at church, and she goes, there's so much, there's too much blood, too much talk about sacrifice. It's instructive. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 4. You see this verdict. I'll read it again there. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. You know, if our understanding of God is that He is to be discarded with, blah, 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 when we judge Him to be not powerful enough, not loving enough, not wise enough, not entertaining enough, not suitable to my own quest in life or my perfect idea of whatever it is, perfect job, perfect family, whatever, that view, we have to know, is absolutely against the Bible. Absolutely. We wouldn't even think, we wouldn't even think of this of sinful creatures, right? We wouldn't even think of this of our parents, still sinful creatures. Mom, dad, not powerful enough, not loving enough, not wise enough, not entertaining enough, not suitable to my quest in life. So I discard you and I'm going to the world. You know that betrayal, right? You feel that betrayal. We don't even think like that. We're not even supposed to think like that towards our parents. Why in the world will we think like that towards God? All sovereign and loving, all just and merciful and compassionate. Our very own creator. That view of God at the end of the day sees God as so tiny. Our little God that we employ to be our little personal Sherpa God to help us get to where we want to go, to the heights of the mountains of Jeremy's life. But friends, the God of the Bible again is Lord over all. Sovereign, holy, and righteous. Which frankly means, and Isaiah clearly holds it out, it means that God will judge but in so many other places in Isaiah, it is also clear that God is loving, which means though he will judge, he will also save. Though he will judge, he will also save. And now we turn to point number two. Let's look at those things. God will judge, so repent. God will judge, so repent. God moves first to judge his own people who have flippantly rebelled against him. Look what he does there in 526. 526. Again here, when these people have betrayed God, when they have rebelled against him, you have to think treason. It is treasonous. If God creates a people, he's created all of us to be in a relationship with him where there is no sin and, his, and we were to know his absolute love and then we rebel and sin against him, we set up our own kingdoms in his kingdom. That, friends, is sin and that is treason. The Bible says the punishment for that is death spiritual death in hell even. That's how serious it is to sin against this holy and righteous God. But you see here what he does with his covenant people here. And not all of them were believers. Some clearly rejected him and did not care. Look at 526. He, that is God, will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And what is it that they are to do? They are actually to judge the na- he calls the nations to judge them. Verse 27, none is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken. In other words, they're persistent, they're going. Their arrows are sharp. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. And their wheels are like a whirlwind, like a tornado. And then the, 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 the imagery, imagery shifts and it gets worse. Their roaring is like a lion Like young lions, they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. And then it switches again. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness 
and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Just as they would not accept his light, so the people are thrust into darkness. Just as, the, they, just as they would not accept God's light, the people of God are thrust into darkness. Pay attention, though. They are crushed by the very thing they hoped in. They are crushed by the very thing that they hoped in. Now, when I think of that, right, being crushed by the very thing I hope in, I can't help but think of some drug users who get hunched over. You may see them in various places here, certainly. But they're hunched over and they're high as a kite, heroin or um, other drugs. And they're basically sleeping, but they're, but they're still semi-conscious. I don't know if you've ever seen this. There's lots of documentaries about it. It's really sad, very difficult situation. And they are basically, they're high as a kite, but they're hunched over. And they stay that way because they are essentially asleep. And some of them go on to stay that way because they're in that semi-conscious state so often that their body just gets stuck like that all the way unto death. You see how the thing that promised pleasure, the thing that they delight in initially, the thing that they delighted in initially becomes their harsh master. And so they are crushed by the very thing that they hoped in. For Judah, for Israel, God judges them and he just simply advances the situation. He brings them all the way to the end of their worldly hopes. He just fast forwards it, bring them all the way to the end of their worldly hopes. The world may promise to them, to us, safety, security, pleasure, fame, power, whatever it is that you want, that you may fiend after, but it only leads to death. That's why trusting in the world is described in 2818 as a covenant with death. All of the things that we hope in that are not God, not the sovereign one, will abandon us to the grave. And though we may, in our sin, somehow even boast in those things now, eventually things get topsy-turvy from the earth's perspective and they become our humiliation. So God tells Israel, look at 30 verses 1 to 30. 30 verses 1 to 30. He says, Ah or woe, stubborn children, declares the Lord who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, here's the judgment, shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. In what of the world, friends, do you seek protection and shelter? Those things you realize will just leave you hunched over, turned in on yourself. Just follow your deepest disappointments and frustrations and you'll find out where it is that your hopes are. What is, it, what is it that makes you feel sort of like you hit rock bottom? Friends, it's that that you perhaps trust in or on the flip side, you can trust your greatest joys. Possibly. In those moments, right, you're grasping after something to deliver you. Maybe you guys know this even right now. You know this cycle and you've, you've been stuck in it for 5, 10, 20, maybe even 30 years after grasping after one thing after the other. And you're here today and you're right at that moment about to reach out for the next. And here is blah, blah, blah. But out there you think is wisdom. 
Friends, you realize that you are turning into, and I don't intend this to be funny, but a golem-like creature enslaved by what you think will deliver you. And then you go to the flip side, right? Maybe your joys, maybe the things that you take pride in, the things that you trust in where you don't need the Bible or God, there maybe you, you, you become so confident like, for example, using this illustration so the kids can understand, the Gaston in Beauty and the Beast that frankly, no one wants to be around. You look at Gollum and you're like, oh, turned in on himself. You also look at a Gaston and you're like, oh, I don't want that either. Whatever it is that you chase after, grasp after, friends, you realize that that thing is becoming your humiliation. And if right now you feel like you have no hope in the world, which oftentimes we do, God could be moving to show you just how dangerous your situation is. Actually, just how weak and powerless that thing is that we tend to trust in. He's showing that to you right now. And he wants you to turn and repent. To turn away from those things and turn to him, the Lord, your creator, your satisfaction. Well, not only does God judge his people, the covenant people, but God judges the nations as well. This is in 13 to 27. Now, of course, the judgment of the nations is kind of throughout, but it's heavy here in chapters 13 to 27. They're largely judgments against the surrounding nations. Within this section, there's sort of three turns of prophecy, and with each one, Isaiah pushes into the future. So addressing the present time, if you're taking notes, you want to understand the structure, addressing the present time in chapters 13 to 20, he addresses the present, his present, And then as he pushes more into the future, there he addresses that in 21 to 23. And then he gets all the way basically to the end times in 24 to 27. And the judgment there climaxes in 24.1, which says, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. The Lord will be utterly, the, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. It's clear God judges. It's clear that God judges from the word of God. Now, non-Christians and Christians, when we think of this judgment, sometimes we can, we can ask, like, why, does God, why, why is it that God judges in the first place? But again, non-Christians and Christians understand that, that basic, the understanding, they understand the basics of authority and authority exercising judgment. Where authority is recognized, of course we expect judgment, right? You think about the Supreme Court of the United States, we expect judgment. You think of the district court, we expect judgment there. Now, of course, we're, we might debate as to whether or not the judgment was just, but we do, in fact, expect judgment. We could go further, right? Where there is good authority, everybody wants good judgment. We go even further. Where we think judgment is just, we approve of judgment. We rejoice in judgment. And where injustice is present, we all long for righteous judgment. So at some level, it's really clear, but we all understand this basic understanding of an authority exercising some sort of judgment, and we will even appreciate that. We don't have to be Christians to appreciate this, to understand this. Well, his own people and these nations, they frankly did not recognize God's authority. They had scorned his judgment, again, because they wanted to do what they wanted to do, just like we today as sinners want to do what we want to do. We determine for ourselves what is right and wrong, calling what God has determined good, we say that's evil. Or what God has determined evil, we say, well, that's good. We trust in what we want, living by our own wisdom. Of course, the problem is, as I mentioned before, that God is the only sovereign. There is none besides him. Over and over and over again, God is named in Isaiah as the Holy One, the separate one in sovereignty, in his purity, in his moral majesty, in his glory. So turn over to Isaiah chapter 6. 
Again, in Isaiah 1 through 5, it's basically like a prologue. There's judgment. It's clear. It's a, they're in a very bad situation. People are turning away. They're all going to their own way. But then who is it that our eyes focus on? It's the Lord. In 6.1, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And even the heavenly beings, they're ministering to him. They're proclaiming God's sovereignty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And that is really not just three holies, one repeating itself. It's more like timesing itself. Holy times holy times holy, that is God. Who else is this God? Of course, we could do this all day. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Here we're dipping in a little bit to a future uh, section. And the reason why we're turning is because I want you to see that, look, this is just Scripture. What I'm talking about, it's right here. Believe me, only insofar as I'm talking about what's right here. Who is this God? Who is this holy, 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 the sovereign one? 40 verses 25 to 27. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the holy one. Rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, the entire world, the entire universe. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. I mean, how many things have you named? You can't turn up to me and say, Jeremy, your new name is such and such. You have no authority to do that. Everyone will laugh at you. God is the one here who exercises his sovereignty, names them all, brings out the host, names them all by the greatness of his might. They are, and not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary for they shall walk and not be faint. Of course they do that because God is God. Not because we are so strong. It's because God is sovereign. So you see why it is at the height of our pride then to disregard God, to trust in ourselves when God is the only one. There's an incredible living illustration that holds out to us the folly, the foolishness of trusting in ourselves when God alone is worthy. So turn over to 36 and 37. 36 and 37. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria at that time, invades Judah. And they, Assyria here invades Judah all the way up to Judah's neck, it says in the earlier chapters of Isaiah. And they reach, right? They go all the way to Jerusalem. This all happens during Hezekiah's reign, Ahaz's son. Hezekiah was much better than Ahaz, though Hezekiah himself was a sinner. That's very clear. But he was better than Ahaz the king. So Sennacherib sends his high-ranking military officer called the Rabshaka to deliver his threats and taunts. So think of him as like the hatchet man of the Assyrian kingdom. And Assyria reigned over basically everything. The Rabshakeh and the other Assyrian troops surround Jerusalem and the Rabshakeh goes to Hezekiah's officials. Look there in verse 4. This guy speaks in Hebrew, their own language. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you trust now? 
that you have rebelled against me. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt. So by this time already, they had, they had relied on Egypt in order for deli- to deliver them against Assyria. So he said, behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken rod of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. But you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Is it not God whom Hezekiah, this God whom Hezekiah himself went against by tearing down the places of God's worship? So what happened there is, as Ahaz had, right, he, he gave into syncretism. He took the worship of Yahweh, combined it with paganism, set up all these altars and, and illegitimate worship places to worship all these sorts of gods. And then Hezekiah tears them down. And so here, the Rob Shock is confused. He thinks like, what are you doing? Do you worship all these gods in your different places and now your king go in and tore, tore them down? He said, how's that for strength? But hey, basically what happens is that Hezekiah's officials, knowing that it might discourage the people Say there in verse 11, look there. Please speak in Aramaic, but not in Hebrew, lest the people hear it and lose heart. So they're cowering, they're, they're, they're shaking like the leaves in the forest, right? And the Rob Shaka, sensing weakness, he just goes straight for the jugular. And in verse 12, look there. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. The Rob Shaka makes his worst mistake. Not only does he mock the Lord, he equates the Lord of all with all of these pagan nothing gods. Verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his hand out of the hand of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. This is a bad situation here. As history goes, the Rabshaka leaves to take care of other matters with Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. But then, of course, they send more messengers to taunt And this time he goes straight after Hezekiah, straight after the true head of Judah, the Lord as well. 37.10, look there, 37 verse 10. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gazan, Haran, Razeth, and the people of Eden who were at Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, the king of Eva? So do you hear the pagan Assyrians taunting the Lord? Where are the gods? Where are the kings? But God will only be tested for so long. 37.20, Hezekiah goes up to the Lord. 37.20, so now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. And you look at God's response in 23 and 25 that he gives through Isaiah. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With many, my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to the remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters. I dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. You see there that Assyrians trust and boast in themselves and their mighty chariots, obviously not God. Look at his response there. In verse 26, have you not heard, this is God, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. 
while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it's going down. Do you hear what he's saying there? Assyrian says, where are your gods? They are nowhere to be found. Why do you trust in them? Don't be deceived. Where are they? Nobody can rescue you out of my hand, just like I have devastated everywhere else. So I will devastate you. And God basically turns up and says, here I am. Here I am. And I'm over it all. Whether it is God's people rejecting him God is still sovereign, Isaiah chapter 6, on the throne. Whether it is the nations mocking God, even bringing cities to heaps, God is sovereign over all, he says. You look there at the conclusion in 28 and 29, verses 28 and 29, God says, I know you're sitting down and you're going out You're coming in. I know you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. What else does God determine? Look back at 37.7. 37.7, he says there, I will make him, that is the king of Assyria, fall by the sword in his own hand. And you see the heart there of why God is going to do all of these things. Look in 37.35. Here you see the sovereign rule of God. For I will descend, defend this city to save it for my own sake. And for the sake of my servant, David. Of course, David's long been dead. He's talking about the king that will come from David's line. And just as he promised, so the Lord fulfilled. Verse 36, it's brief, but to the point. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. God took the king and sent him back to his own land. 20 years later, he was dead. And what is it? What was that hope that he lived by? military campaigns power he lived by the sword he lived by idolatry and what was it that he was crushed by verse 38 sennacherib's sons who lived by the same murder him and take the throne all in the house of his god where are the gods of assyria where is their power where is the king they are dead Folks, we are all guilty of trusting in and worshiping the creation or ourselves rather than the creator. That's what the Bible says. Doing so is an affront to God as there is none besides him. Just as God here holds out judgment, he does so that we would repent. That's, that's, that's an incredibly amazing thing here that though we have sinned against him, committed treason against the only one there is, the only king, God nevertheless calls us, gives us opportunity to repent, to confess our sins, to turn from them, that's what repentance means, and then to turn back to God. Though we see judgment in Isaiah, we also see tons of hope here in the moment in God who forgives. And that, friends, is in so many places in Isaiah. But look in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. What does Isaiah say or confess after he beholds the glory of God in all of God's sovereign authority? He confesses, woe is me, repentance. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's confession. And it's not just confession for wrongdoing. It's confession before God. It's confession before God. That, friends, is true repentance. It's not just turning, but it's turning back to God because we recognize that we have sinned before Him the sovereign one. This is what repentance is. It's turning back to him. It's recognizing him for who he is. Holy, holy, holy. It's a hearing and heeding of God's word, listening to it. That's in chapter two, verses two and three and other places. It's a trusting in him. Chapter 26, verses one to four. 
And though we know that things may be difficult, even as we watch the nation or the people of God, the church, struggle and give in to sin, repentance involves a waiting on the Lord. It's a repenting, a trusting, a waiting on the Lord, knowing that He alone is gracious and merciful and will save So again, if you find yourself in that cycle, you feel let down by the stuff, the junk of the world that only leaves you crushed in on yourself, the message here is repent of your sins and you will be forgiven. Point number two is God will judge, so repent. Point number three, our last point and much shorter, God will save, so trust. God will save, so trust. In Isaiah chapter six, God forgives Isaiah and Isaiah stands as a wonderful example for all of us to follow in his footsteps here. He is the object lesson for sinners who have gone astray each to his own way. Amidst all the sin and rejection that we see in Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, again, do not miss the object lesson. Verse 6 of chapter 6. Let me turn there. Then one of the seven uh, seraphim, heavenly being, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see there how God makes himself at one with a sinner by his grace? That is what atonement is, at one mint. And it's all by God's initiative here. God's heavenly being takes the coal that was from the altar of atonement, blood sacrifice. And it's that coal that touches Isaiah's lips and his sin is done away with. That's the message that God also holds out to sinners. That's why Isaiah the prophet announces both judgment and salvation. Look over to chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. You look how early Look how early this hope comes in. 118, though your sins are like scarlet red, deep red, they shall be white as snow. Turn over to 30 verse 18. 30 verse 18. And I want you to see, I want you to fix your eyes on hope. That's why we turn... Thirty verse eighteen. <laughs> this is amazing. So so gracious, so kind. The Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. You see, in all of this judgment. The people were, in fact, to be convicted of their sin. They were, in fact, to repent. But they are, in fact, to trust in him who saves. He alone, friends, is worthy of your trust. He alone is the one who is able to be the foundation of your life now into eternity, not standing hunched over, being crushed by the thing in which you hope. Here... He is the foundation that sets you upright in his grace, praise God. God himself said in 28.16, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation that you, friends, can stand on. While God said that he was going to level the forest in chapter 10, so to speak, in judgment, he also promised hope. And he said that there would be one who would rise up from the kingly line of David. Chapter 11, verse 1, turn over there. Chapter 11, verse 1, a branch would come up from the line or stump of David's father, Jesse. Everything is raised to the ground, but there is in fact a stump. And from that stump of Jesse, David's father, David would arise. But not just David, it is one further down in his line. And and here, this king 
has all the, all the attributes of his reign are detailed for us. In verse 2 of chapter 11, what is it that would control him? It is the spirit of the Lord. Far better than David. This is a king far greater than David, far greater than Solomon. Verse 3, what is it that would be his delight? The fear of the Lord. What is it that would mark his reign? Isaiah says righteousness and faithfulness. And out of his mouth would come God's law. From this king would beam the light of salvation to those who walk in darkness. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, there will be no more gloom, no more anguish. Verse 2, because the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. God is so gracious. Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He would wage war against sin, death, and Satan as Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we could never live, fulfilling all of God's law. He dies on the cross as a substitute, which we look at in the next sermon. A substitute bearing the wrath that we deserved for his people. He goes to the cross for our punishment. He takes it on himself, bearing the wrath that we rightly deserved. Three days later, he would get up from the dead, defeating sin, death, and the devil, showing now to the entire world that everybody who repents of their sins and trusts in him will be saved, reconciled to God, our maker. And listen to what it says in 25.8, 25.8. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away every tear from all faces. In the beginning, we saw that God lit a signal for the nations to judge sinners. Well, in Christ, God lights another signal, the signal to the nations to be saved. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him the nations shall require, and his resting place shall be glorious. 1924, in that day Israel will be a third with Egypt. God's people, pagans, converted, trusting in Jesus. Gentiles coming into the people of God. In that day Israel will be a third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt my people and Assyria the work of my hands and Israel my inheritance. Praise God that his judgment knows no partiality, and his salvation also. Which is why the promise of salvation is for you. And you will know with all of God's people, as Asel says in chapter 12, verse 2, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are so gracious, so compassionate and merciful. It is not surprising that you would judge because you are righteous. But it is surprising that you would save and gather for yourself a people and exalt your people to share in your own glory 
as we understand it, as we behold the beauties of the king, Isaiah says. And through no work of our own, you make us holy and you purify us little by little and ultimately in heaven to the full. And you do this so that we might display your marvelous glory and character, your righteousness, your love, and your compassion. So God, we praise you for your grace. We praise you for your mercy. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the king to put all of our disordered loves into order so that we might, as we just read, come to understand and behold and live in your salvation and your grace. We thank you, God, that you are our strength and our song and our salvation. In your name we pray, amen.